They say that good things come to those who wait, and there may be no better political example of that adage than State Representative Doug Clements. After first running for the House in 2010, the St. Anne Democrat finally won election to the Missouri General Assembly's lower chamber in 2018. And he has a lot to say about his first impressions of legislative life. Clemens joins us next on the latest edition of Politically Speaking. So let's hit the music. This is Politically Speaking, the longest-running episodic podcast about Missouri politics. It's a little complicated in Bolivar because there is a Parsons family there. But we also knew that it was important to make sure that, that we got to where we needed to go. You know if you walk in a room and you're getting ready to make a decision and everybody in the room looks like you, you need to stop. And right now what happens in the United States Senate is as critical as anywhere else in the country. I really want the state to succeed. We want everybody to uh, know that we're all working together. I just worked hard to try to build my name where I didn't have the money. And welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, Jason Rosenbaum, a political correspondent with St. Louis Public Radio. You'll soon hear from State Representative Doug Clemens of St. Anne. But before we do that, I think I would be remiss if I didn't introduce the new co-host of Politically Speaking. Hi, I'm Julie O'Donohue. I'm the other politics reporter at St. Louis Public Radio. Welcome, Julie. Hi. Hi. Yeah, this is so exciting. This is really exciting. I don't have to do this by myself anymore. (laughs) Um, And I should just note for our listeners, Joe Manis is going to return to the show at some point, but she's still kind of on her retirement before she starts her part-time work. Yes, I'm not replacing Joe. No. (laughs) I don't think I could. Rather than just jump into a show without like explaining who you are and what you want to do. I want to take this opportunity to ask who you are and what you want to do in, in, as a, the new St. Louis uh, Public Radio political correspondent. Sure. Um, well, uh, I grew up in Washington, D.C. Um, unusually, both of my parents are actually from Washington. Um, and uh, I've only been in Missouri, in St. Louis, for about a week. Oh, my. Yes. So, um, listeners, I'd love your suggestions of places to go, everywhere from things to eat to, you know, just things I should see. You've already been to Forest Park and the Art Museum and Tower Grove Park, and you've eaten at a couple restaurants so far. I have, yeah. Um, I I ate at Balkan Treat Box and uh, Morning Glory Diner. Um, yeah, I've eaten a couple different places. So you're you're a a former state house reporter. I am. I'm a former state house reporter. We are. Rachel Lipman is a former state house reporter, and Jacqueline Driscoll was a state house <laughs> reporter before she became our state house reporter. Right. And we're going to introduce her formally uh, in the coming weeks as well. What what was it about? Your time, you you covered the Louisiana State House. What was what was it about your time there um, that made you interested in state and, and local politics, and and what gets you kind of excited about this particular job? It actually predates that a little bit. So um, my first job in journalism, um, I, I graduated from college knowing I wanted to go into journalism, but unlike uh, a lot of journalists, I didn't. Um, know that throughout college so I didn't really you know like work at my student newspaper or anything like that Um, so uh, I worked for a community newspaper in Washington DC called the Northwest Current that unfortunately doesn't exist anymore 
Um, and I covered the DC Board of Education at the time. Um, and I just like really uh, loved it. I really loved covering like local politics. And I, at the time, thought, well, what I want to do is cover like a major city uh, council, like metro council. In DC, there's only actually like 12 members of their city council so not 28 like st louis correct or although like, although, oh. although that is going to drop to 14 eventually but right now there's <laughs> i guess wow st louis has more than double the members yeah. of the dc city mm-hmm. council well that's I, one thing st louis should be proud of i guess <laughs> i think it's a legacy thing with cities you know like chicago and new york both have about 100 but you know the new york is i think what like four times the size of Chicago. <laughs> so Unfortunately, as a Chicago suburban native, I, I guess we're always jealous of New York because yeah. it's an evil place. But continue. So my next job, uh, I worked in Virginia um, in kind of the suburbs and ex-suburbs, ex-urbs, if you will. Um, and there I did cover a lot of general assembly. The Virginia um, legislature is called the Virginia General Assembly. Just like the Missouri General Assembly. Great. (laughs) Um, And I loved it. I mean, I really liked that uh, a lot. I liked um, the part-time nature of it. I liked that it was like a citizen legislature, if you will, uh, same as Missouri. Um, And I just thought it was really interesting. Uh, And then eventually, my most recent job is I was the state house uh, bureau chief and reporter for the Times-Picayune um, for six years, and I covered the state legislature there, which meant I lived in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, although my paper was in New Orleans, um, and I loved it. At the state level, um, most states, I think all states, have to have a balanced budget, and I think that that makes the the policy uh, discussions really much more interesting and like the stakes are higher. That seems strange because you would think the stakes are higher in Congress, um, but because they can run a deficit, you know, they can spend without actually having to tax. And I, I actually really like the idea that you either, you know, you're either cutting or you're raising taxes to, to do what you want to do. Uh, usually, I mean, if you're lucky, your economy is growing like a weed and you don't have to do either of those things. But um, I, I, that makes it more interesting to me. And I think the policy discussion is a little bit more interesting um, in the state I covered, not to get on a hot button issue, but something like Medicaid expansion made like strange bedfellows. There were actually some very conservative people from rural parts of the state that were in favor of Medicaid expansion, they didn't want their hospital closed, and you know, so I, I like I like the personalities too. I think people are a little bit more like who true to the who they are uh, than they are in Congress, where there's a lot of um, Sh- showmanship. Right. I was trying to think of the word without being being too pejorative, right. but I think you and I have both had these discussions offline that. There's so much interest now in federal politics, probably because of the rise of Donald Trump. But a lot of what happens in D.C. is kind of so surface level, like 10 days talking about a speech rather than 10 days talking about a major policy that's passed. You know, I also think like stuff's happening so fast in a state legislature. They're having to go through so many things that it's that makes it interesting. And um, 
I think now that we're seeing like some cuts in other parts of the media, both at TV stations and newspapers in particular, um, there seems to be like, I notice a lot more national reporters sort of talking about how important it is to cover state politics, like local politics. Um, I don't know what what to think about that, but there seems to be a concern that, that we're losing good local reporting. And I have to say, I don't want to like plug St. Louis Public Radio, but one of the nice things that attracted me at this station is that when it comes to public radio stations, this station's committed to a lot of local news. Uh, and that's not true of every public radio station in the country. Thank you for introducing yourself. And I'm really looking forward to doing like three or 400 podcasts with you. Yeah. Are you doing three or 400 podcasts with somebody <laughs> else? And without any further ado, here is our conversation with State Representative Doug Clemens of St. Anne. He's a Democrat. And like many first-time guests, he kind of explained how he got involved in politics and what drove him to be in the state legislature. So um, my name is Doug Clemens. I'm born and raised in the district which I represent in Jefferson City, which is kind of a big deal. Um, We're a working-class district, um, went to the local high school, and got politically involved mostly because of my mother and my father. My dad was a machinist, um, local 837, worked for McDonnell Douglas, and my mother was incredibly politically active. Um, she kind of had stick when it came to an issue. Uh, I remember we had Coldwater Creek, which you may recognize from some other news, that flooded into our backyard on a regular basis. Um, we had an acre of land in Bridgeton, and Coldwater Creek would flood all the way up to our back door and sometimes into it. Uh, my mother would not stand for that, so she tackled everybody she could, city, county, state. I remember going with her to Senator Kit Bond's office when I was a kid. And uh, she got politicians to do what she wanted. She had the attitude that we work for the people, and by God, you're going to listen to me and do what I need you to do. And I kind of took that from her. That's how I got involved in a lot of other issues around the area, like Westlake Landfill and Coldwater Creek. Um, and that's how I ran for office and wound up eventually being elected. Can you tell us a little bit about how you're involved with the landfill um I guess, activism? So that's a long, strange story for me. So my, my brother is 17 years my elder, just the two of us in the family. Um, he's always been an activist, and in the 70s, he was very, very, very involved in environmental issues. He still is, actually. And uh, he brought me to a meeting one time that he was attending that uh, he had no place else to go with me and sat me in the back of the room, and this woman sits down next to me. Her name was Kay Dry. Uh, Kay Dry was just an amazing individual, and she is is on the forefront of fighting for a place where we're safe from ionizing radiation, I guess is the best way to put it. Um, I've known Kay as an aunt, basically, all my life, but when she I first met her, she sits me down, starts asking me questions, finds out I live near Coldwater Creek, and she freaks out and starts telling me all about the radioactive waste. So I went to school the next day and told everybody all about the radioactive waste. Nobody wanted to hear about it. But from that moment on, I've been involved. Um, when I got to be 18, I started to be able to go and give testimony and pay attention to meetings with FUSRAP, the Army Corps of Engineers, and the EPA concerning Westlake Landfill. And so when Westlake Landfill had a bad decision, in my opinion, on their remedy of decision, a few years back, they reopened that decision because um, federal EPA decided it was that poor of a decision that they needed to come up with a better one. Um, the uh, 
women around Westlake Landfill, Don Chapman and Karen Nichols, um, who's actually married to a friend of mine from high school. Um, those folks had just found out about what was in that landfill and the fact that the landfill was on fire. So it was real easy to get attention given that we had basically a burning landfill with radioactive waste in it. Um, from that point, um, we formed some organizations. Um, I wound up becoming a volunteered to become the first chairman of the community advisory group. Um, community advisory groups are an arm of the EPA Superfund program. Those organizations tend to be hated by environmentalists, and the reasons for that are pretty simple. Um, the PRPs, potentially responsible parties, those folks that, that actually are paying and having to clean up the waste, the pollution that they caused, often infiltrate these organizations, take them over, and the citizens no longer have access to their own organization. So knowing this, we sat down as a team and we wrote a very stringent set of bylaws. I resigned as chairman. I resigned my voting membership when I became elected because no elected official, no PRP, and no one with a vested interest in the, in financially in the program may participate as a voting member in our CAG. Okay, so it has to just be community members. Yes. Do you run for state legislature with the, I know you ran more than once, but do you, did you run with the idea that you thought being in the state legislature was going to help with the Westlake landfill? I mean, is there anything you can do from your current office to help try to uh, uh, fix, ameliorate that situation? So, so there are very limited things that the state of Missouri can do in this particular issue. The reasons I ran for state representative have to do more with my district and more with the state of Missouri. Uh, this is where I grew up. This is a place I'm proud to call home. I love Missouri. And I don't like the direction it's taking. I, I think we need to have better schools. I think we need to have better health care. I think we need to have a great improvement to our infrastructure. And the area I grew up in was a flourishing area when I grew up there. Um, my dad moved there in 55, I think. Um, it was a growing area because he got a job at McDonnell Douglas. And at the time, we had Ford Motor Plant, Hussman Refrigeration. The list goes on and on and on of growing industrial Northwest County. Um, it's not the same anymore. And I want to see it come back to what it used to be. Uh, when it comes to, to issues like Westlake Landfill, there are things that the state can do, in, including advocate to the EPA with a title in front of my name. Um, we are very, very, very involved, not just myself, but Paula Brown, where the Westlake Landfill um, um, actually is in her district, the 70th district. Um, we work with uh, Missouri DNR because this is a split jurisdiction site. So the Department of Natural Resources actually has jurisdiction over some of the site, and the Environmental Protection Agency on a federal level has jurisdiction over another part of the site. So making sure the two play nice together, making sure that things don't fall through the cracks of jurisdictional dominance um, is a big job for us. And we have a phone call every other Monday with DNR and all the interested parties to go over all those details. So as it was alluded to before, you ran for the state house in 2010, lost by 11 votes. You ran in 2012, lost by a, a little bit wider of a margin. And then you ran in 2018 and beat four other candidates to, to finally reach the promised land, the Missouri General Assembly. And I'm, I'm really interested to hear as somebody who 
has tried multiple times and finally got to the place where they wanted to go, in this case, the Missouri House. What have been your impressions of, of serving so far? Um, I imagine since you are a Democrat in a heavily Republican legislature, it, it probably can be frustrating at times, but I want to hear about your first impressions. So um, my, my first impressions, uh, as a freshman, it's very much like being a freshman in high school or college. I'm trying to find out where the restrooms are and am I going to be to class on time or committee meeting on time. Um, so there's a lot of running around. Um, we did a freshman bus tour. I very much enjoyed the freshman bus tour. Um, got to meet folks from both sides of the aisle, mostly the what other side of the aisle. What was on the bus tour? <laughs> um, it's a, too long of a list for me to even recall. We we started out and I only did one of the two weeks because I, I was still working a full-time job. Um, we started out in Jefferson City, went uh, all the way to northern Missouri and cut over, cut over to uh, um, St. Joseph then down to Kansas City, then down to Springfield and back up in the second oh, week. Oh, wow. It's like really a bus tour. It, it is a real bus <laughs> tour. Wow. And we, we see factories, prisons, all sorts of things along the way. And we get stuck on a bus for hours. We get to tell stories. We get to know one another. One of the things I can say about the freshman class, aside from being large, we have a very big freshman class, is I would say the majority, both sides of the aisle, have governance in their heart as opposed to political banner waving. And that's a big deal. Um, when we came to the charter bill, um, which I, I'm actually opposed to charter schools, um, we we had a big push to let that bill on the floor and take a vote. It was really the freshman class, primarily freshman Republicans, that stopped that vote from happening because they, they weren't going to budge. And there were threats made, their legislation was held up, but they held their ground. And I think it really comes down to a lot of guys that look like me or a lot older and they've seen other things in their lives that uh, are more intimidating than having their bill held up for one session. You're on the Health and Mental Health Committee. I guess so. Uh, first, I want to ask why did you want to be on that committee? Why, did, if so, why did you want to get be on the committee? I, I definitely wanted to be on the committee. I, I actually volunteered for a couple tough committees. That is one of them. Um, for me. I think if you fix two things, you start to fix a lot of other bigger problems. So if you take care of health and education, we start to, to get a lot of other issues fixed in this state. Um, the state of Missouri is in a crisis situation when it comes to health care, particularly the rural areas in Missouri. And this is one of the things we, we talk about, Medicare for all and, and a lot of different fixes to our health programs. But we, in some areas of the state, simply do not have access to a physician. It's a two- or three-hour drive to go to a doctor's appointment. Um, we've lost, what, five hospitals in the last four years in the, in the outstate and the rural areas. Um, most recently, the Mexico Hospital closed just north of Columbia, Missouri. Um, I actually have uh, an innovative piece of legislation that I've been trying to craft. Um, it's bigger than I thought it would be. Simple concept. Um, of course, it's difficult to craft. Um, but I, I looked around in the 1930s, we had no capability of getting electricity to outstate Missouri. And I looked at that model and decided we could do a healthcare cooperative. We could allow municipalities and member-owned organizations to form to open hospitals and clinics in rural areas so they can service those areas the same way larger for-profit organizations serve in Kansas City, St. Louis, Columbia, and, and Springfield, which are quickly becoming the only places you can go in Missouri for health care. You have a background. I actually was wondering if your interest in health care comes from. It seems like you 
have worked on a lot of issues with with people who are blind. Your wife, I feel like, is a sign language interpreter or something. Yes, my my, um, my wife is a, is an ASL interpreter. Um, I I've worked with the hearing impaired, not the deaf. Okay. Um, in a line of work. Oh, where I'm we, sorry. Not that, people okay. who are blind. People who are deaf. <laughs> I apologize. That's okay. Um, so so my life has been kind of drawn to those kind of areas. I I, I think it's it comes back to the basics again. If if someone is healthy and well they're able to go out into the world and do for themselves. But in, unless they have the access and the means to become and to maintain their health, we, we've got big problems. You know, one of the things that's been in the news lately is how 120,000 people, including about 95,000 children, have been dropped from the state's Medicaid program. And I'm actually reading an article that came out a couple hours ago from the Kansas City Star that Julie was kind enough to send me via Slack <laughs> about how House Speaker Elijah Har wants answers about this or he's going to appoint like an investigative committee with state representatives David Wood and John Patterson. Patterson is a medical doctor, fellow freshman Republican from the Kansas City area. And the quote that I'm reading right now is Representative Wood and Representative Patterson have extensive knowledge of Missouri Medicaid and the utmost care for the most vulnerable Missourians, especially our children, that extends past partisan lines. I trust that both Representative Wood and Representative Patterson will continue to ensure Missouri's children receive the medical care that they are entitled to. So beyond just reacting to what I just told you, what has been your snap reaction to the news that thousands of children have been dropped from the state's Medicaid system? Well, I've got to tell you, the news is picking up momentum about this particular issue, but this is something we've been talking about for some time. Um, the Department of Health and Senior Services has been continually citing that, that people are not re-enrolling voluntarily, um, but we know that this also coincides with their change in systems for how enrollment takes place. Um, enrollment can be confusing, and we, we are concerned that people don't understand the re-enrollment process. Um, the only excuse they've given us is the greatly improving economy, but those of us that are in these seats that get phone calls from constituents saying, hey, my daughter is no longer able to get health care, they were going to get their tonsils out. Um, our our uh, minority leader, Crystal Quaid, actually um, had a constituent who was going to have heart surgery for her son and went in to discover when the surgery was scheduled and everything that they were without health care. So these aren't people that, that are knowingly saying, hey, we're, we're done, we don't need Medicaid anymore. These are people that are being dropped from the rolls. Now, 95,000 Missouri children, I mean, put that in your head for a minute. That's, that's a lot of kids, and these kids should have access to health care. No ifs, ands, or buts. I don't understand why this is happening. We need answers for why it's happening, and praises to Speaker Har and the two representatives that he's selected, um, Wood and Patterson, are, are both good individuals for this particular issue. Um, but in the meantime, like I said, this has been going on for months. We're talking about people going without. While, while we sit around and select people to be on a committee, while we ask questions, while we interview folks, I want the problem fixed yesterday. The Kansas City Star also wrote about this yesterday, but you're right. It seems like it's been going on for a few months. Continuously, there's been a, a drop over several months, and it 
it seems like Democrats in the legislature in particular have been raising this issue for, for uh, oh, I would say since January from what I, I could tell. Um, so yesterday in the Kansas City Star, there was an article uh, where the health department spokesman is uh, providing explanations. And one of the explanations he gives is the economy is just improving and all these people don't need Medicaid anymore. That seems to also have been picked up in other media. The other explanation they gave was that the um, tax, there's no tax for penalty for people who don't have health care anymore and maybe people um, will be leaving Medicaid because of that. Jason and I talked about this yesterday. I said, I don't... (laughs) I don't think because people don't have to pay a tax, they leave their free health care. You know, like Medicaid is a, is free. Also, it's low-income people. Like, there's they're, they're just like that explanation didn't wash with me. And I guess the bigger question I have about that is, like, if that's one of the things that the health department is telling people, like, do you have any faith that they don't, that they actually know why this is happening? <laughs> so um, uh, let, let me take that apart in a couple ways um one is i think they have an idea as to why it's happening um i i also fear that it might be philosophically based i I think that that in the state's push to cut corners and cut the medicaid rolls that there's a belief within the department i don't know how high that would go that it's a good thing that people have a tough time re-enrolling and if they drop off the rolls, our numbers look better and we're doing our job. I, I think that there there is a philosophy that, that says, I'm doing my job if we're serving less people and that gets to the root of the problem if you ask me. Right, and that leads into my second question, which again, I'm, I'm pretty new, so I'm just reading about this in other news outlets. Um, although I will make a plug um, a few months ago Sarah Fenton, who's our health reporter here at St. Louis Public Radio, actually did a story about someone who got dropped from the rolls because they got the new form when the sophomore software system changed and they were confused by it, or I hope I'm representing Sarah's story correctly. But it, in, in any case, they ended up being dropped from the rolls, not like as a deliberate decision. You know, it, it was like there was confusion for them. Um, it's a pretty good story. I'm sure we could link to it um, in the post. But um, the other question I have is uh, I've read that like fiscal hawks in the legislature think that this is going to save the state money. And I'm sorry if this is in the weeds, but children who are covered through Medicaid almost entirely, usually they're they're funded with federal funds. So um, when you drop children or when children are not on the rolls, it doesn't actually usually save in my uh, experience states all that much money because it's mostly federal funding. So I'm curious about whether, like, <laughs> whether there's some question. I mean, let's, I'm sure you would disagree that this is a good way to save money, given your politics. But, like, I also wonder if there's a question of even whether dropping kids from Medicaid rolls is going to save anyone money in the state. Well, well, I'll tell you, there, there's some, there's a lot of talk about money and socialism when it comes to medical access. Um, There's a lot of talk about tax money. Um, One of the things that I know is that Medicaid expansion, for example, 
Um, those are federal tax dollars we're talking about. Federal tax dollars come from my pocket. When we failed to expand Medicaid in the state of Missouri, we failed to take our own tax dollars back to the state. Now, that's a real cut-your-nose-off-to-spite-your-face sort of attitude politically, and, and that's the type of thing that we as constituents need to fight against. Um, when, I, when I look around and I, I see the financial burden of Medicaid on the state, it's not that much. I mean, mind you, it, for our state budget, it, it accommodates to close to 34% of our budget, but, but on the dollars spent, nearly 60 cents of every dollar for a normal Medicaid patient for a child, it's 90 cents per dollar. If we expand Medicaid, the dollar percentages shift and we get close to 80 cents on the dollar of federal money. Those are our federal dollars. They're not something we're getting for free from the government. We as taxpayers have paid them in and I want to see them serve the citizens of the state of Missouri, not go off to somebody else. It's simple math, and if we want to talk about the, the financial aspect of it, let's talk about the financial aspect of it, and let's get my tax dollars back helping my neighbors and family. Right. So I'm just going to clarify for people who may not, both with children who are on Medicaid and what you're saying, adults who would be covered through Medicaid expansion, most of the money is federal. So when you don't cover those people, those federal dollars don't come to Missouri. And I think in both cases, it's up over 90% of the funding is federal. So people who support, well, I've hardly ever talked to anyone who doesn't support covering children via Medicaid, like low-income children. But people who support Medicaid expansion say, um, you're leaving, like Missouri is leaving money on the table. I actually used to I covered a legislator who used to call it burning money on the lawn. Um, <laughs> like if if you don't expand Medicaid because because y the money you get for putting up a certain amount of money is 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 quite a bit. And now just to play devil's advocate, let's say Donald Trump gets reelected and the Republicans gain in Congress and they get rid of the federal match in the Affordable Care Act and states have to cover like 50 or 60 percent of the costs. In that, which I understand is maybe not a super likely scenario, but it's often been brought up by Medicaid expansion opponents as a reason not to go forward with it. Would it still be worth the additional state cost to, to do that sort of thing? Well, you know, Jason, I this is, no issue in politics is simple. You, you can't put something in a vacuum and talk about it. So, so the first thing we need to talk about when we talk about funding anything in the state of Missouri is the state budget. Now, the, the state budget is a problem. We we don't ever fully fund the state budget because our revenue is down year after year after year after year, mostly because of tax breaks and tax credits to corporations and the wealthy, in an attempt to grow jobs. Uh, now, I, I'm all about economic development. I, I've been in management for 20-some-odd years of my career. I, I know how to balance books, and I know how important a bottom line is. What I also know is how you arrive at that bottom line and how effective and how large that bottom line are dependent on what you do day-to-day. -day. When we look at the state of Missouri, one of the things that we have to come up against is I, I had a startup company with, with a, a friend of mine some years back. We lost it in the economic downturn. Um, we, we had a warehouse over in Berkeley, just outside of my district, right off the side of an international airport. And we could not get high-speed internet to that warehouse. Mm. 
That says something about infrastructure in the state of Missouri. It says something about the, the area that I'm from, and it says something about neglect. Now, if I'm, if I'm moving a corporation, if I want to set up shop someplace, what am I looking for? I'm looking for a quick, quick infrastructure hookup. So I, I want to be able to, to come in and make sure that I've got my electricity, my plumbing, my sewer, my, my building ready to go. And I want an educated, able workforce that doesn't need to be worried about how healthy they are, how educated they are. They're ready to come in and start work. Those are the things I'm looking for. So we're going to go back to Medicaid now. I, I take a long way around. You'll That's notice okay. this. If we're going to spend our tax dollars effectively, we need to concentrate on, on things like infrastructure, education, and health care. Now, as far as we can take care of health care on a state level, and reduce health care costs on employers, we suddenly become a much more attractive place to set up a company. We also benefit from having a much healthier next door neighbor. And what's wrong with that? I'm happy to pay my tax dollars to make sure people are happy, healthy, and educated. We'll be back after this short break with Representative Doug Clements. And we're back with State Representative Doug Clements. I want to talk about another issue that popped up during the legislative session that we've talked to both Republicans and Democrats about, and that's legislation that bans most abortions after eight weeks of pregnancy and also would ban most abortions completely, nearly completely if Roe v. Wade is overturned. Like many Democrats, although not all Democrats, I want to just point that out, you voted against this bill, and I think, did you actually speak out on the floor against this? I did. I spoke twice about this bill on the floor. Um, so I, I'll, I'll start with, um, I, I'm pretty solid on my opinion about this particular issue. I, I, I'm a choice candidate, and I believe that individuals should have the ability to make decisions about their own bodies. This is another health care issue. So when I was uh, in college, I, I was dating this wonderful woman who brought me along to hear the president of Planned Parenthood speak. And uh, it was a great speech, and I, I enjoyed it. And, and afterwards, there was a cocktail reception, and everybody's in the lobby chit-chatting the way those events go. And I excused myself to go use the restroom. And while I'm in the restroom, wash my hands, and this older gentleman steps up next to me, and I could see him in the mirror that he was pretty old. And I was... 20-something, so I'm sure he seemed much older than he was. <laughs> but uh, I, I turned and asked him, I said, can you tell me why you're here? You don't really fit the demographic. And he says to me, I'd be happy to tell you why I'm here. Actually, I want to tell everybody why I'm here. So he was from a rural town in, in mid-South Missouri, and, and this is back in the 1940s. So that town had the one factory, one grocery store, one hotel, one bar, you know, the deal. And if you were lucky, you worked in the factory because uh, that's where the big money was at. And he was lucky. He worked in the big factory. And he was clever. And he was clever enough that when folks got injured in the machine, um, he was trained to give them first aid, which was a kind of gruesome thing at times. But he, he was good at his job and so good that they pulled him aside one day and said, hey, if you want to keep your job, we want to expand what you do. So we're going to set you up with the local doctor, and he's going to teach you how to perform abortions. And he learned this. He kept his job, and he did perform abortions. He told me the procedure. I won't repeat that, that particular thing on the air. But um, he told me about it, and he said that the, the girls he was giving 
these abortions to, uh, performing this service for, were often women that worked on the factory line that were kind of in a precarious position with a boss who, who had kind of used his power of authority to, to cajole them into a situation or the sons of the owner of the factory. And it was always the same thing. It was the, the rich guys in town, and uh, he was taking care of them, taking care of their problems for them. So uh, he turned to me and he looked me in the eye, and I, and I tell you, I, I actually, I get a tough time with this. I, I remember him directly saying to me, I will never let this happen in my lifetime again. And from that moment on, I've never had a doubt about where I stand on this issue. So you can say what you want about the procedure, you can say what you want about your beliefs of where life starts, but this is a health care issue. And we're in a land where we have freedom of religion and religious beliefs. Each individual has to face those tough choices on their own. And we know, we know, we've done lots of research, what it takes to reduce abortions. Simple things. Access to education, make sure that people understand their bodies, and access to contraception. Nothing in those bills, nothing will reduce an abortion in the state of Missouri. What it will do is punish women and punish physicians. I actually have a question about the the dispute that's going on here with the Planned Parenthood, the abortion provider in St. Louis. I and I genuinely don't know the answer to this question. Do you all, as like on the health committee, do you all have any oversight of of the licensing or anything that's going on with the facility here? No, we don't have any oversight with the licensing. Um, so these regulations have been set up in statute, however, um, which would have to be laws that are reversed. Um, abortion facilities um, in the state of Missouri meet a higher bar than a place that you go to have your heart transplant. Um, though those qualifications are really tough for a clinic that generally does health exams and one medical procedure. Um, the idea that we hold the, these folks to this, this standard that's above anything else that any other medical facility is held to, it's just kind of slanted, to say the least. So that that's the start of it. That's why they've managed to shut down all these facilities, is regulations about having a registered um, uh, attending physician at a neighboring hospital who, who can ad, has admitting privileges in a neighboring hospital um, for having clinic cleanliness standards above that of, of any surgical facility in the state. Um, those types of regulations are the hoops that any of these facilities have to jump through. Now they're, they're trying to talk about having physicians interviewed as the reason for not granting a license. I'm sorry, but the last time BJC facilities had their hospital relicensed, did they interview every physician that worked there? No. So these standards are slighted, and there's a problem. The question I have going forward is there is an effort to overturn this bill through a referendum. Actually, there's two efforts. One is through the American Civil Liberties Union of Missouri. The other is through uh, liberal icon David Humphreys, who <laughs> uh, everybody everybody on the Democratic side now loves after uh, hating him for many years. And I'm, I'm obviously being facetious. The ACLU one has run into a lot of procedural trouble because 
the and the argument that uh, Secretary of State Jay Ashcroft is making is since part of the bill has an emergency clause on it, which goes into effect right away, it's in it's ineligible for referendum. And there was litigation, and ultimately the ACLU was successful at restarting the referendum. But Jay Ashcroft is not like mandated to approve it until the middle of August, and you have until August 28th to gather nearly 100,000 signatures. First off, I know you're, you you know a lot about politics and the politics of of initiative petitions. Do you think the ACLU is going to be able to gather 100,000 signatures in in two weeks? Um, the odds are stacked against them. I, you know, I, I will be one of the folks happy to sign. Um, so, so they'll need 999,000. Um, but, but, um, the, for me, um, we had a discussion earlier where I was talking about, uh, governance and, and political agenda. We, we take an oath when we go into office. And, and that oath is to uphold the Constitution of the United States and the Constitution of the state of Missouri. And I would hope that when we go into office, we have the service to our constituents and service to the people of the state of Missouri at our first thought. So the Secretary of State has a responsibility by the Constitution, and I feel that he did not fulfill his responsibility, that, that he put a political agenda in place of his responsibility. All we're asking for here is to allow the people of the state of Missouri to weigh in with their voice. And time and time again, I'm finding that the state legislature and our current state administration seems to have issue with the people of the state of Missouri having their wishes fulfilled and having a say at the ballot. Um, we, we remember the, the initiative petitions that, that passed last session um, clean being one of those. We also remember that there there was a vote in St. Louis City to increase the minimum wage, and so our state legislature responds by overriding local control. Um, I see this repeated time and time again, and as a patriot and as someone who believes in democracy and my voice should have importance to my elected officials, I find it ethically disturbing that someone would step in the way of democracy the way he has. So even if they don't get the signatures for the referendum, opponents could still start an initiative petition campaign. The difference, though, is you would have to vote yes to overturn it as a vote opposed to no during a referendum, but the effect would still be the same. So my question for you is, if there is either a referendum or an initiative petition that repeals the abortion legislation, how do you think it will fare in Missouri? I ask this because there's a lot of, pe- of people who are in the legislature now, mainly on the Republican side, whose main talking point during elections is, I am against abortion rights and I will do whatever I can to ban abortion. And people keep voting those people into office. So it makes me want, I understand that this bill may be different because there's no exceptions for rape or incest, and that could be a, a, a messaging standpoint. But, but, how do you think it will fare given that it's not like a lot of Republicans are shy about talking about this issue when they ask for people's votes? So uh, in the state of Missouri, um, a lot of sampling has been done about people's actual opinions about abortion. And time and time and time again, it comes back that 70 percent of Missourians agree that women should have access to safe legal abortions. Now, there are qualifiers on that for every individual. 
Um, I think it really comes down to messaging as to whether a vote would go to maintain the bill in its current format or not. Um, but, but, you know, part of this issue also comes down to us talking about the issue. I, I, I remember when I first ran for office, I, I was endorsed by NARAL and Planned Parenthood, and I was proud to have those endorsements. And I had everyone around me tell me, you can't put those endorsements out. And I said to myself, why can't I put the, well, you're in a Catholic district. Now, remember, I'm born and raised in this district, and I have these opinions, correct? So this confused me a little bit, and, and there you go. You don't listen to the politicos all the time. But, but the, the second door I knocked, this woman bring, brings me in, and, and she sits me on the couch, and she, she says, I want to ask you some questions. She she brought me in and sat me on the couch because she had knee surgery, and she had her husband bring me in. And she she goes, so tell me about yourself. And so I start I start off telling her about myself. She goes, okay, 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 I got it. You, you, you got that down. So how are you on abortion? I'm like, well, well ma'am, I, I, I believe in a woman's right to choose. She's like, thank God. <laughs> I'm yeah. so sick of these Democrats that say they've got to be pro-life in our district. And it hit me that these 70-some-odd-year-old women in my district who are Catholic fought for the right to choose. What do you make, like we just made a joke, but what do you make of um, Republican, is it D David? David Humphreys. Yeah, he's, was like, he's not actually a liberal <laughs> no, icon. No, no, <laughs> I know who he is. In fact, is. a bunch of Democrats right. accused him of, like, bribery, <laughs> yeah. or, and they, they really, really dislike yeah, him. Yeah, I, I, I know who he is, but uh, what do you make of David Humphreys? Uh, I think he said he's going to put up a million dollars. He already has, actually. Yeah. What do you make of, of that? I mean, that's a major Republican. So to your point, people's views may not always be apparent on this issue, and this seems to be a high-profile case in which... So so this is one of those things. I, I, I believe that we have to have conversations. Um, Humphreys is a perfect example. Um, David Humphreys and I probably don't agree on a whole heck of a lot of things. Um, but this particular issue, we do. And I, I, I have to say, you know, one of my, my jokes is that there, there's a local guy here who likes to influence politics. And I, and I say, you know, we do agree on chess. <laughs> so so what, you find a place to start with folks and, and have good conversations. Um, but what do I make of Humphreys? more power to him in this particular instance. Today, he's my friend in this issue, and, and I am, I'm happy to have him aboard. It seems like you feel pretty confident that if this went to a vote, that it would it it would be overturned, or you at least think that's a good, good, uh, there's a good chance of that. You know, I don't have a crystal ball, okay. um, but, but I, I will tell you that, that if people think about this issue, um, the, the answer becomes pretty prevalent, that it's a health care issue, that this is about human rights, and, and frankly, as convoluted as things are, when, when you start talking about situations where, where people actually need this service, you know, we can cut down the, the need for abortions with, with simple sex ed and access to contraception. So that leaves us situations where those things aren't available. And those are the terrible situations that we hear about that there are no exceptions for in this bill. Do you think the Republicans, I'm sorry, I'll say let's 
be broader, the anti-abortion people who are on the other side of this issue, do you think they are also concerned that the the law would get overturned? I mean, I, I, I don't want you, I guess you can't look into their heads, but, you know, I, I feel like if you were confident that this was going to stand, that, that maybe the referendum, why not let it go forward? Yeah, I, I would have to agree. I, my, my gut is that, that people are, are better thought out than politicians and politicos give them credit for. And when it comes to a complicated issue like this, most folks have actually been touched by it or know someone who has. So I think that, yeah, that, that side probably does have some fear that they would lose if all their neighbors were voting and it wasn't just up to them. So the final topic I want to talk to you about before I let you go is legislation dealing with confined animal feeding operations, or CAFOs. I think it's confined, or it may be concentrated. If it's concentrated, you can zap me with like concentrated animal feeding operations, yeah. Thank you for that correction. Acronyms are confusing. So this has been an issue that has been percolating around the legislature for over 10 years, basically bans local entities from having ordinances around CAFOs dealing with like uh, smells, smell mitigation, or runoff, or, or whatever. The interesting thing is you were actually like one of the people that was most firmly against this, even though you were not from rural Missouri. Explain what your, your opposition was to this bill. Well, let's start with probably three days out of the week, leaving the floor. I, I literally would lean over to a Republican as we're walking out of the chamber and say, why is it that I'm defending local control against the local control party every day of this session. And time and time again, the, the, this has happened. They, they mandated our school year length from a state level, so school boards can't set their own school year anymore. And here we go with concentrated animal feeding operations. These things are corporate-owned, mostly foreign Chinese corporate-owned, and it is a corporate special interest that is now taking the precedent in law above our local elected county and city officials. And this is a problem for me, not, not just the environmental aspect, and we don't even need to talk about animal cruelty aspects. The, the concept that we have elected officials willing to put corporate interests above their constituents is infuriating. Now, I got the arguments for this thing, job creation, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I, got on the floor and actually said hogwash, which I'm extremely proud of. But but one of the, the things that, that plays into that comment is why this stuff is hogwash. And I got picked up by the press on that particular comment. I got picked up by rural Missouri press. So I've been interviewed by small radio stations for one or two second blurb, and I've been put into all these newspaper articles and newspapers I'd never heard of before. One thing that I can tell you from reading all of those articles is when they do the local interview of the local rancher, our farmer, who now feels affected by this, they are infuriated. And every last one of them has made a comment that says it is time we elect representatives that truly represent us, the farmers of Missouri, as opposed to who we have there now. So I think there's an opportunity in the outstate when we speak about this stuff as a result of this. Can you explain what the environmental impact is? I'm not sure everyone fully 
understands that. So I'll, I'll try to be not too graphic. Um, concentrated animal feeding operations are the things that you've seen documentaries about. They put animals in these little small cages. They can't turn around, can't move. They live their entire life in this little cage, and they eat and produce the waste product from eating um, lots of it because there are thousands of animals housed in just a small area. Um, manure in concentrated amounts produces bad chemicals and bad diseases. Those things readily move into our streams, groundwater, not to mention air. So current Missouri regulations are the most lax regulations in the nation when it comes to these particular operations. They, they're bad. <laughs> so if you have a house 50 yards from your property line, one of these places can set up shop and store manure 50 feet, so not yards, 50 feet from your property line. Now, what the bill has done is made it so that is now the standard. Your county, your city can't do anything to improve your life that way. So your property value just got lost, your, your quality of life just got lost, um, and most likely our rivers and streams nearby which is a big part of our tourist dollars, which Missouri talks about all the time. So I guess what you're positing through these interviews or this press coverage that you've gotten is that smaller ranchers or smaller non-corporate ranchers and farmers also aren't pleased with this bill. That, that would be my take. And, and actually, I talk to folks, so it's it's not like I live in a bubble. I've talked to ranchers and farmers around the state of Missouri who are absolutely opposed to this idea, and they understand where it's going to head. You know, the value of the family farm in Missouri has a great deal of value to me, and it doesn't seem to for the folks that that sponsor these concentrated animal feeding operations. It just, they want that land so that they can basically have a cheap operation and ship more pork to China. Well, Representative, thank you so much for coming on our show. I don't think this will be the last time you're on our program because I think you have a lot of interesting things to say about a lot of interesting issues. So we appreciate having you on and being able to represent Northwest St. Louis County on the show, finally, I would say. For all of our stories, stlpublicradio.org. You can follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. How can people follow you on Twitter, Julie? At J.S. O'Donohue. Are you on Twitter? I am, Doug underscore Clemens. Follow him as well. We'll be back next time. And until then, so long. <laughs>